Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 546, Journey to the True Self. What's the first step to becoming our true selves? What's the difference between a rabbi and a lord? And what are the signs of true brokenness? This week, we are studying the first half of Matthew chapter 26. Hello. Good to be together again today. Um, I, I hope that you really enjoyed the last two weeks. We were so blessed and privileged to have uh, Brian Zond and uh, Brad Jerzak, uh, each teaching on an area of, of great expertise. And, and I know just as one who, along with Tim, was asking questions and interacting, I found it an incredibly rich time. Well, today we're moving on to chapter 26 of Matthew, which I have always found to be one of the most profound chapters in in all the gospel accounts. You know, back in chapter 16, way back then, uh, right after Peter identified Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, it Peter, uh, or Matthew shifted the narrative at that point, and uh, from that point on, they were headed toward Jerusalem. And from uh, a few weeks ago, when we looked at the triumphal entry, from that point on, we were in Passion Week. Well, now we're in crunch time. We're, we're now the last three chapters of his account. Uh, these are the final climactic days. The powers of darkness uh, have increased and increased. Uh, it, it's, I often, in fact, for years, when I picture the scenes of this chapter, I picture them in black and white. I don't know why, but that's always what happens to me. It, it's like the, the powers of darkness are almost palpable. You could reach out and touch them. Jesus was fully aware of this spiritual dynamic. In Luke's account, he said, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. Well, we've watched this conflict, conflict rise and rise and rise between Jesus and the religious authorities, and, and there is only one way that this tension can be resolved, and that's what we are now stepping into. So starting at verse 1, chapter 26, the plot against Jesus. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and they conspired to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But they said, not during the festival, or there may be a riot among the people. Well, let's briefly go through this section. Jesus made it crystal clear now to the disciples. He said, the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. A few things to point out here. Jesus' death and resurrection are the very point and and the power of the gospel. So we're coming right down into that fine point. And he says that the Son of Man will be handed over. It's really interesting. Eighteen times in chapter 26 and 27, Matthew uses the same Greek word that here is translated handed over. Matthew wants us to know that although Jesus is about to be handed over and again and again, you know, first to the mob, we'll see that in a week or two, then to Caiaphas, then to Pilate, then back to the crowd, and then finally to the soldiers. Although all of this handing over is going on, Jesus remains in control because the passion begins with this declaration that we've seen right here, that it's a declaration of his free will decision to suffer. At the same time, Matthew also wants us to know that Jesus was delivered up by the will of the Father. Uh, one of the early church fathers, Origen, wrote this. God delivered him up uh, out of mercy for the human race. He has not spared even his own son, but has delivered him for all of us. There he's quoting Paul's letter to the Romans. He was in fact delivered up to be crucified so that disarming the principalities and powers, he might triumph over them on the cross. Again, he's quoting Paul's letter to the Colossians, Colossians 2.15, that he's 
the reason he's crucified is that he might disarm the principalities and powers and triumph over them on the cross. We're going to look a lot at this in a few weeks from now when we look at what's going on at the cross. This this understanding of the cross is called Christus Victor, and we'll look at that soon. Now, we need to consider everything we see uh, throughout this chapter in the context of the Passover. Israel's Passover will become the whole world's Passover. Whereas the ancient of death passed over the houses that had the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorpost, now Matthew will show how the blood of Jesus shields the angel of death from believers' homes everywhere. All four Gospels emphasize the Passover as the setting for the Passion. The events we will look at today do not actually take place on Passover. We think this is a Passover meal. Really, it wasn't. It's, it's the day of preparation. It's before the Passover. Passover took place while the cru- crucifixion was happening. Verse 3, then the chief priests and elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. We talked a few weeks ago about Caiaphas and his father-in-law Ananias and how uh, history tells us they were powerful, but they were very corrupt. And this jumped out at me as I was preparing the teaching, that, that the, the elders, uh, the, the chief priests, they gathered in the palace of the high priest. I think there's a, a warning here. It's that the the religious elite uh, are in their palaces and they're plotting Jesus' death. Religious power and and social privilege so often go together. We we see this in, in so many different traditions. One of the things that made the world fall in love with uh, Pope Francis was that he. He did not go into the great palace that by rights he could have as pope. He didn't have, he didn't travel in in wonderful big fancy limousines, but in a little Ford Focus and he lived in just a small apartment. But but it, likewise, we've got to watch for this in, in, in the Protestant world, the evangelical world, wherever, because, because power... Uh, Religious power and social prestige, it's like they attract each other, and they're a very dangerous combination. They were in the day of Caiaphas, and they are today. So as these guys gathered to plot Jesus' death, they said, but not during the festival, uh, or there may be a riot among the people. Well, when we read that, we go, well, the crucifixion took place right smack dab in the middle of the festival. John Chrysostom, another church father, he points out that because of their rage against Jesus, when they found a traitor, Judas, they did not wait, according to their own counsel, they did not wait, but killed him at the feast. Remember, folks, we talked about this a few weeks ago, the position of power and wealth that they got from, uh, and the wealth that they got from that position uh, were being threatened. And this has much to do with their violent reaction and response, uh, which, by the way, was under the influence of the powers of darkness. Well, let's move on, and we're going to go slower now. The anointing at Bethany, starting at verse 6. Now, while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment, And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when the disciples saw it, they were angry. And they said, why this waste? For this ointment could have been sold for a large sum and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? She has performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. By pouring this ointment on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this good news is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be 
told in remembrance of her. Now, there's a parallel account in John, John 12, 1 to 8. And uh, I am very convinced with, with, you know, many theologians and commentators that this is the same woman. Uh, In John 12, it's Mary of Bethany. It's Mary who was the sister of Lazarus and Martha. Um, And so as we look at this passage, we should hold John 12, 1 to 8 in mind too and kind of look at them together to get a fuller picture. As we've told you before, uh, Matthew's style is often a, quite an economic style. He, he doesn't fill out the picture as full as some of the other gospel writers. So we'll look at them together. Now, it's interesting to me, there's several overall comments I want to make, and then we'll go slow. We'll go back through it verse by verse. Just like the, the first sign, the wedding at Cana, remember in John chapter 2, uh, there's, there's an almost ridiculous extravagance that was going on here. Remember at Cana, there was so much wine. Here again, it's this extravagance. Jesus is returning once again to Bethany and to his beloved friends. He, it's referred to as the house of Simon the leper. Now, it's likely that Jesus had healed Simon sometime before that, because certainly if he was still a leper, people could not come into his house. But what stands out to me here is the stigma. Simon, not the healed, but he's known as Simon the leper. That, that The stigma that attaches to people through sickness or failure or anything that's happened to them. By the way, the name Bethany means house of affliction. And now the house of affliction is a house of restoration, and it's become a house of healing. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 6.11, In the past, some of you were like that, but you were washed clean, like Simon. You were made holy, and you were made right with God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. It's a house of resurrection. Who lives there? Lazarus! who was raised from the dead after four days. This is now not a house of affliction, but it is a house of not just life, but resurrection life. Now let's go back and look at this kind of verse by verse. Verse 7, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. This is something interesting. The whole Christmas story began and was only made possible because of the the complete, the abandoned trust and love of a woman, Mary. Now, as we come to the other end of the story, in the, the, the last part of the Passion narrative, it's a woman's display of abandoned love that starts the story. It's like it releases the story of the passion. It's so interesting to me, in a world dominated by men, that Jesus and the gospel consistently honor and elevate women. I was very recently in a setting of of kind of church leaders, and I looked, and they were all white men. I thought, oh, Lord, set us free. Set us free. What's she doing to him? This is incredible. This is profound. It's women's ministry, but it's ministry that touches everyone. So they're sitting there, picture it, they're sitting there, and suddenly Mary comes in. Nobody knows she's going to do this. It's a moment of great surprise and, and a whole shift in the atmosphere. And she comes in with, a, with a, a jar, an alabaster jar, of incredibly expensive ointment or perfume. It was likely a family heirloom because we're told elsewhere that, that it, it, it was worth up to a year's wages. And, um, and maybe it was even Mary's dowry. It, it represented not only the offering she gave of it, but for her, it re- represented her financial security. 
It re represented her future. We work in parts of the world where women, young women who want to get married, cannot get married until they save up, which for them is a very large sum, a dowry so that they can be married. This is the culture in which she took what very likely represented her dowry and, and gave it away. Mary, in doing this, she expresses her love, but also a, a deep reverence and adoration. And, and she, it wasn't just with the words, it was with all that she had. She took what was the, the single most precious thing in her life, and she gave it to Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it, it, Jesus said, you know, she's anointing me for my burial. So again, he's bringing prophetic insight there. But isn't it interesting that when her own brother Lazarus had died, and his body was prepared, we're told that in John 11, that she hadn't taken that same alabaster vessel and poured it out to anoint even her own brother. <laughs> By the way, alabaster jars were, were more like a... They were a, a vessel that had a long, thin neck. And the way you opened it was you broke the neck. And uh, so that once the alabaster jar was broken open, uh, it could not be resealed. So for her, it was an abandoned giving of everything. There was no turning back. There was no changing her mind. I want you to notice something. It's when the jar was broken, then the fragrance came out. The, the theme of brokenness is going to run through today's teaching and next week's teaching. It was when it was broken, only then the fragrance came out. The principle is not hard for us to understand. The vessel must be broken for the fragrance to be released. God's presence is released in our life through brokenness. It says that the house was filled with the fragrance. Everybody in the house was affected by what she'd done. So it reminds me of Paul in 2 Corinthians 2, a verse I love, I love to quote often. God uses us to spread his knowledge everywhere like a sweet-smelling perfume. Our offering to God is this. We are the sweet smell of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are being lost. We carry with us everywhere the fragrance of Christ. I want to encourage us. We, Again, we, we tend to live in such a rational uh, time and therefore a rational state of mind. We don't realize the power of Christ's life and presence what what this example gives us from, from Matthew and what Paul expressly says, it's a fragrance. And, uh, and it touched the whole room. Her offering of adoration touched the whole room. By the way, I'm going to share this uh, briefly and tell you it is your story too if you'll step into it. I have had on a few different occasions... Someone come up to me, not in church. Uh, once it was a waitress, once it was a businesswoman, and just stand beside me and say, I don't know what it is, but it feels so good being around you, being close to you. And I said, oh, that is the Spirit of Christ. You're sensing his spirit touching you. So I want you to know, let's step aside from how we limit things. We see everything so much in, in black and white. Step aside and step into the freedom of knowing you change the atmosphere. Just like Mary changed the atmosphere, you carry the fragrance of Christ. You can walk into a room and, it, and you bring peace. You can walk into a room and you bring healing. You can, you can simply be there and people actually come to you. Okay. <laughs> now, the church fathers saw great significance 
in this encounter. As I've researched, there was so much writing, but let me just give you a few. One that I haven't quoted for, for a few months now, one of the church fathers, a late church father, Bede, who, who wrote uh, the ecclesiastical history of, of England. But uh, this English church father said this, his head, meaning Christ, which Mary anointed, represents the sublimity of his deity. We too anoint his feet when we proclaim with due praise the mystery of the incarnation which he took upon himself. Folks, we need to be willing to embrace mystery, embrace what we do not understand, embrace that which is without, without any limit to its depth. Let me get back to his quote. Uh, we too anoint his feet when we proclaim with due praise the mystery of the incarnation which he took upon himself. We too anoint his head when we venerate the loftiness of his divinity with a consent, a willing submission that is fitting to him. Later on, Bade wrote this too. We anoint our Lord's head when we cherish the glory of his divinity along with that of his humanity with the worthy sweetness, note this, of faith, hope, and charity. It's like the fragrance of Christ has got particular attributes that come out. Faith, hope, charity. Another church father, Jerome, from the, uh, the fourth century, he said this, just as the grain of wheat, unless it falls into the ground and dies, does not bring forth any fruit, so also, unless the alabaster jar is broken, we cannot spread its fragrance. Jerome pointed to this episode when he addressed those who were going to be baptized. We have a record of this. This was like his baptismal sermon. And here was a a line from it. The woman has a very special message for you today about to be baptized, for she broke her alabaster jar that Christ may make you his anointed. Once again, we see the power of reading each passage slowly and carefully and asking the Holy Spirit to reveal multiple levels of meaning. So now we look at the response from the disciples, verse 8 and 9. When the disciples saw it, they were angry and said, Why this waste? For this ointment could have been sold for a large sum and the money given to the poor. Now, Matthew says it's all the disciples. John says it's Judas. Um, it's interesting because this seems to be like the, the straw that broke the camel's back for Judas. He was so offended that he crosses the line and he becomes the betrayer. Now, they were all offended. What were they offended by? Her extravagance. Some of us find ourselves offended by by others' extravagant worship. Um, we We can see it individually if we're honest in our hearts. Some of us, when we see just real extravagant worship, we think, well, they're making a spectacle of themselves. We may not say it. Uh, remember when David was bringing back the ark in 2 Samuel, and he's dancing, and his wife, Michal, said, well, you made a terrible spectacle of yourself. And he says, I'll be more undignified than this. So they were offended by her extreme liberality and her, her open, vulnerable expression of adoration. I sometimes wondered why they were so upset. Were they jealous because uh, of the intimate friendship that Jesus had with Mary? And and if you read carefully, if you want to go to John's Gospel and you read John 11 and John 12, you'll see there there was a real closeness there. Were they offended because it was a woman and women are obviously not as important as male disciples? What I want us to be aware of, and I want us to look into our own hearts and and be honest about how offense, when we're offended, it blinds us and it distorts our perception. And we begin to see people or situations in, in the worst light. 
or we miss totally what's happening around us. You know, I was in a I was in a, a an historic time. Church history of the 20th century talks about this great outpouring of the Spirit that was in Toronto, Canada, and I was pastoring a church uh, just 35 minutes away. And the pastor there, John Arnold, and I worked very closely together in, in the structure of our denomination. And you know, it's interesting because people came from all over the world. Two million people in the first year. Two million. But you know who did not come? The, the local Christians said, oh, it couldn't be that big of a deal if it's just here. It always reminds me of Nathaniel. Can any good thing come from Nazareth? But also, it stepped outside. It took people outside the norms of what we're used to. You know, four, five, six songs. Maybe we raise hands. Maybe we don't, depending whether we're in a conservative evangelical or a charismatic evangelical. But it took us outside of that. There was extravagant worship that went on for hours and hours. Even in our own church, my wife Christina and I, we had times where we didn't get home till 3.30 in the morning because the extravagant worship just wouldn't stop. So when we get offended, it blinds us. And we can be like all of those people around the world who said, nope, don't want any of that. That's too much. Now, I just use that as one example. There's so many different ways we can be offended. Mike Bickle used to say, God offends the mind to reveal the heart. So we see these guys are all offended. And, you know, extravagant, selfless love opens us to the likelihood of being misunderstood. I promise you that. If you step out in extravagant adoration for the Lord, get ready to be misunderstood, get ready to be criticized, sometimes even ridiculed. Now, you know, I wondered right there, well, this could have been given to the poor. They were concerned for a a whole group, a general group, in one sense, a faceless group. Um, were they really concerned about this missed opportunity uh, to care for the poor? It's just a question. And then verse 10, but Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? She has performed a good service for me. She's placed herself in an incredibly vulnerable spot. And here we see something about Jesus and the spirit of Christ, folks. Look for this. We see his sensitivity and kindness to people. Jesus is defending Mary. He's protecting her from the disciples. This is clearly an expression of his love and care. He's confirming her dignity. He says this is going to be remembered wherever the gospel is preached. Jesus' reception of Mary's over-the-top gift, I mean, fragrance worth a year's pay, his reception demonstrates his sensitivity to her. Jesus is sensitive to people. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul said this, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose what the world thinks is unimportant for what, uh, uh, for what the world looks down on and for what the world looks down on and thinks nothing in order to destroy what the world thinks is important. This is so hard for us to get, folks, especially when we feel offense rising up. I feel it. You feel it. God's ways are not our ways. Isaiah 55. Who and what we overlook or we criticize, either verbally or just in our heart, These are the very ones that that Jesus sees as being precious. Why do you bother her? She's done a noble thing. Verse 11 to 13, he goes on as he defends her. He says, for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. By pouring this ointment on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Do you hear that prophetic word there? 
Truly, I tell you, wherever this good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of me. How he is honoring her. Now, lots of scholars have wrestled with this statement. You'll have the poor with you always. And uh, so what did Jesus mean? Too easily, too easily, we turn our back on the poor and said, oh, well, you'll have the poor with you always. That is not what he meant. Where was he saying it? He was in the home of Simon the leper. He was the home of a social outcast. Jesus was declaring that the Jesus way will always take us to and to be among the poor. You will have the poor with you always. It will be one of the markers of your life as a disciple. That's what he meant. I'm convinced of it. Have been for years. So, both John and Matthew agree that Jesus connects this episode directly with his burial. I want to talk about brokenness. Because, as I said a few minutes ago, she broke the neck on that alabaster jar, and it was only then that the fragrance came out. On the cross, Jesus takes our sin and our brokenness. And, and he, he turns them around, and we become a, a, a resurrected body. We become a new creation in Christ, as, as 2 Corinthians 5 says. Brokenness, folks, I, I, I just pray. I was praying today. God, help me that this isn't more information for our head, but this will get into our spirits. Brokenness is the only way to our true selves. Let me say it again. Brokenness is the only way to our true selves, the self that can authentically and deeply abide in Christ. We can't break ourselves. We can only respond to God's initiative, again, in faith, hope, and charity or love. It's his initiative This is what it means to lose our lives in order to find them, as Jesus says so many times, including Matthew 16, 25. I believe there are different seasons of breaking, but I think there is usually at least one major breaking that begins the process of transforming us of reforming us, as Paul said in Romans 8, 29, of being conformed into the image of his son. The image of his son was, and we'll see it next week when he says, this is my body broken for you. The fragrance of Christ that is in you and is me can only happen as the jar is broken. And being broken is painful, it's frightening, it, it just, it sucks the life out of us, but it's, it's the old life. It's the false life that is sucking out of us. It is the only way to our true self, Christ in you and I, the hope of glory. Well, I'll move on. There's a brief passage in verses 14 to 16 where Judas, who now leaves, he goes to the chief priests, um, and, and this overt act of betrayal is is Matthew's background for what will be Jesus' final meal with his closest friends, the disciples, including Judas. Judas goes and betrays him, but then he comes back, and Jesus, fully aware of what's going on, he still includes him. I also think that Matthew, who I've said so many times, wastes nothing. We see the juxtaposition right here. Mary's ointment is so extravagantly expensive, of huge value, versus 30 pieces of silver, which, by the way, 30 pieces of silver in first century Roman-occupied Palestine was not very much. It was a very low amount. So he presents us with this contrast. He is of ultimate value. Jesus is, to Mary, and now Jesus has sunk this low in Judas's eyes. Well, I want to look at the Last Supper. We will actually get to 
the Eucharist, communion um, next time because there was so much here. But, but let's look at what leads up to it. Starting at verse 17, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is here. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, whenever you see that, truly I say to you, literally it's amen I say unto you. But it's, it's a strong emphasis. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after another, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The bowl was what was called sop. It was like gravy, dipping your bread into a gravy bowl. The one who's dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. And the Son of Man will go just as is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would have been better for him if he'd not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. (sighs) It's interesting. When he sends them out, uh, Matthew says, uh, You'll find a certain man. But both Mark and Luke seem to imply a supernatural word of knowledge because he says to them, you will find a man carrying a pitcher of water. But, but for Matthew, the emphasis isn't whether it's supernatural foreknowledge, but rather he gives them a command and they obey. Obedience is so important throughout Matthew's gospel, as we've seen. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. This language is most emphatic. Now, this seems jarring to our ears. You picture this lovely meal together, but he wasn't concerned about a nice, memorable, final supper. He knew this was the last supper. They didn't know that. And he he wasn't concerned to be jarring. Christostom wrote that Jesus chooses to alarm all for the sake of saving one man. He chooses to alarm them all that he might save Judas. Now, I want you to notice something. Jesus does not single out Judas. He's still giving him an opportunity to turn back. Even in this crisis, Jesus doesn't expose or or dress down Judas. Time or times when you will be betrayed. And it is one of the most painful things that can happen. But I believe with all my heart that betrayal is one of the Lord's greatest tests. And it, when we walk with our eyes fixed on him, when we walk in forgiveness, when we walk, when we walk in the Sermon on the Mount, we will see in this great test it opens up our lives to a whole new dimension. You will be betrayed. But look at Jesus' example, and he never exposed. Verse 22, they were very sad, began to say to one another, surely you don't mean I, Lord. Um, More literally, from the, the Greek, it is, is it I, Lord? Something for us to get hold of here today, especially as we prepare next week to talk about uh, the Eucharist, communion, the Lord's Supper. Jesus is inviting self-examination. I think this passage encourages us to seriously examine our hearts, to seriously examine our relationships before taking part in the Lord's Supper. There's a seriousness There's a gravity, an awareness of a holy moment that communion calls us to. It's not something we take lightly. 
Paul was telling that to the Corinthian church, but I think he, God needs to tell that to the 21st century church. There's a seriousness, an awareness, I'll say it again, of a holy moment. There is an early writing in the first, it's probably around 200, the Didache, which is a collection of early church teaching. And the Didache says this, And on the Lord's own day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanks, first confessing your transgressions that your sacrifice may be pure. Is it I, Lord? can be our own question to Jesus that we ask before taking part in communion. And and we can make this practical by allowing time before communion, not only for for self-examination, but reconciliation with others. When I was pastoring, there were many a time before we actually took communion, I said, now we're going to just take five minutes and, and move amongst you. Ask the Lord is it I? Is there something that you need to make right with someone else? And, uh, and go and do that. Verse 23, when they said, is it I? Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. You notice again, he doesn't say Judas, Judas is going to betray me. He stays purposely rather ambiguous. It's another chance for for Judas to repent, which means metanoia, to turn around, say, oh, I got to come back. There's another aspect here. In, In the Jewish culture of that time, to dip your hand in the bowl at the same time as someone else, especially the master, is is a blatant show of disrespect. Verse 24, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Jesus is fully in control. He has known the path that the Father has prepared for him all along. But that does not mean that we're no longer accountable for our response to God's plan. We will always have free will. We are accountable to a sovereign God. One commentator, Boring, put it this way, God is fully sovereign. Humanity is fully responsible. So Matthew creates a clear and sharp distinction between Judas and the other disciples. Something I saw, I don't know, 40 years ago, and maybe you saw it 45 years ago, but it, it, I've never forgotten it. One by one, they're sad. I mean, in, in, in John's account, they lean, uh, John leans on Jesus' chest. But in this account, they're, they're asking one by one, surely not I, Lord, is it I, Lord? You hear that? Surely not I, Lord. Judas says, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. This is critical. For Judas, Jesus was a great teacher. Judas liked what Jesus said. But you can always leave a great teacher. You cannot leave a Lord. You can always leave a church if you decide, oh, I don't like it anymore. You can even say, I'm going to follow Jesus in my own way. But you cannot leave a Lord. Remember in John 6, when people were leaving and Jesus turns to the disciples and says, are you going to go too? Peter says, you alone have the words of eternal life. Where else could we go? There was no turning back. There's no turning back with a Lord. With a teacher, we keep our options open. And I think it is too easy for us to relate to Jesus as a teacher. Now, it's interesting because uh, we see this only in Matthew. He's pointing this out, and we will see it climactically in two weeks from now. But the other disciples, they all began with the understanding that Jesus was a rabbi, was a great teacher. But in time, they made the transition to understanding who he really is. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Judas started in the same place. Jesus was a great teacher. He followed him. But he never made that transition. 
and it left him with weak faith that was able to be shaken by circumstances. So to wrap this up, we've been presented with a clear and very important link and contrast. Firstly, we saw Mary. She deeply encountered Christ. Jesus described this encounter as abiding in him or remaining in him. Uh, John 17.3 gives us Jesus' definition. This is eternal life, that you might know him. We've pushed it off to heaven when I die. He says, no, this is eternal life right now. This is eternal life, living in abiding relationship. And, and for Mary, this deep knowing took her beyond caring about what the others thought. It, it took her beyond caring about what maybe even was her dowry. It took her beyond any fear of looking weak or even foolish. On the other hand, Judas, who spent much of probably three years with Jesus, he watched Jesus, he heard Jesus, and he, he expressed the correct words, the correct outward words, and the correct actions. He went along with them. But Judas, Judas never knew Jesus. He never encountered Jesus, the Christ. Folks, it is encounter that transforms us, not information, not knowledge, not fitting into a Christian group of, of people in the way they act or speak. It is encounter, not information. More information will not make us disciples of Christ. It is encounter. And to settle for knowledge, to settle for right group behavior, will not hold in the crisis. Let me finish without comment on a couple of verses from what is perhaps my favorite, favorite psalm. It's a Davidic psalm, Psalm 27, 4 and 5. One thing I ask from the Lord, and this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent, and he will set me high upon a rock. One thing, encounter with Jesus. God bless you. Tim and I will talk a little bit about this in just a couple of minutes. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comments section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. Well, uh, that was excellent. Thank you. I, I got to say, uh, fantastic. The juxtaposition between uh, Mary and Judas, uh, profound, really helpful. Um, I want to spend some time uh, now talking a little bit about brokenness and what that looks like and stuff. But um, before we do, I wanted to share with our listeners a story. If, if you read our emails regularly, then this may be familiar to you. Uh, if not, uh, I should just warn our listeners ahead of time. This is a difficult story to hear, but this is, this is the reality that, that we deal in. This is the reality of a fallen world. Um, as you know, regular listeners, uh, we work with our partners in Uganda rescuing, uh, teenage girls who have suffered abuse. Uh, and last week we heard a tale of a young woman who was, uh, at the time not yet 16. And, uh, she, uh, her family was 
facing very, very difficult financial times because of the, the pandemic. Uh, they weren't making ends meet. And so she went to work uh, at a restaurant to make additional funds. Uh, her job was delivering food, delivering meals to their customers. Uh, she went to deliver a meal one day, uh, in, just as she does. And uh, when she arrived at the customer's house, uh, this man brought her inside, effectively kidnapped her, uh, took advantage of her in awful, awful ways, abused her, um, and then threatened to, uh, to, to do terrible things if she told anybody the truth of what had happened. A few weeks later, she wasn't feeling well, went to the doctor, uh, and it, she learned that she was pregnant. Uh, when her dad learned, he immediately kicked her and her mother out of the house, uh, accusing his daughter of being a prostitute uh, and accusing her mother of raising a prostitute, kicked them out of the house. When when our team encountered them, they were homeless. Mm. Uh, she was pregnant and homeless. Uh, our team rescued them, uh, brought her into the shelter, uh, and uh, we, you, Impact Nation's family, uh, cared for this young woman uh, by meeting her her medical needs, uh, paying for her medical bills. Uh, last week or about 10 days ago, uh, she was rushed to the hospital for emergency C-section. Uh, the baby was delivered, uh, and found to have a number of, uh, abnormalities that were very life-threatening effectively, uh, two heart defects, um, uh, major problems with the intestines. Uh, one of her limbs was malformed. And so we, uh, we got a, an email telling us about this and we sent, we forwarded the, the news onto the Impact Nations family, uh, and just said, Hey, please help. Uh, the initial, um, emergency response surgeries, uh, were estimated to cost, uh, around $9,000 or so. Um, now the great news is because of the Impact Nations family faithful giving, we were actually able to send those funds immediately. Uh, so we just said here, make it happen. Uh, they got, uh, this young baby, her name is promise, uh, which happens to be my eldest daughter's name as well. Uh, they got her into surgery, uh, for the initial tests and, and all these things. Uh, and the, the first round of, of treatments have been completed. Uh, and it's probably about six months of her gaining strength before she can go in for more, uh, surgeries and stuff. Um, I mentioned the costs were estimated to be around nine thousand. They'll probably go up from there. Uh, the Impact Nations family began, began giving right away. Uh, we've already raised uh, over five thousand of that need. Um, but if you hadn't heard, if you wanted to be a part of that, I just I wanted to let people know uh, for a couple of reasons. One, the only way we uh, could have rescued this uh, young woman to begin with was because of the Impact Nations family and your faithful giving uh, in in keeping this program going each and every year uh, so that our teams are out there in the community looking for lives to be rescued. Um, and the only reason we could send funds immediately to help pay for the surgeries was because the Impact Nations family's faithful giving to our Survive to Thrive Fund, uh, which is what the medical costs of these young women. Uh, but I also wanted to let people know, if this is something that you would like to give towards, you can head to uh, impactnations.com slash promise uh, and give today towards that. Uh, and uh, we will keep you guys in the loop. It'll be several months before we get an update, I'm sure. But, Do we uh, know what the anticipated additional medical costs will be? At this point, we don't. Uh, so, uh, yeah, difficult to say. Okay. Uh, but anyway, and please be praying for baby be promise and her mom uh and for our team who are caring for them because that's uh that's a big deal too so um you know it's interesting i i heard you talking about a dowry today in your teaching mm -hmm. uh, one other horrific element of this story is in uganda uh people actually pay a, a bride price so um the father of this young woman who at first ostracized her kicked her and her mom out he uh, he eventually uh, came around and said, "I'll accept you back in my home if you will marry the man who abused you, and uh, and he will pay the bride price." So he was effectively trying to sell off his daughter for a price. Ugh. So uh, this again, this is the reality of much of the world today. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, I'm sorry. I know that's a difficult story, but these are the things that, that we're facing. Um, and we can't turn away from them. All we can do is run into the darkness, knowing that we carry the fragrance of Christ, knowing that we carry the light of the world, uh, and uh, the darkness will not overcome. Yep. Uh, Could I just um, 
insert so that we don't forget. Yeah. I don't forget. Uh, people are praying all over the world for Ukraine. Yeah. Um, impact family, please. Uh, we need to keep uh, praying and praying and just, um, you know, God hates war. He hates killing. And I, I'm just, however he leads you to pray that that the carnage stops. I saw that today we went over 2 million refugees. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we all know the stories, but please, please uh, let us pray. Yeah, absolutely. Um. I want to I want to talk today a little bit about the nature of brokenness. Okay. Uh, it, that is effectively a metaphor, uh, and I'd like to actually talk a little bit about what brokenness is, what it looks like, what it means. Um, but I want to contrast it with something else that could be easily uh, confused with brokenness. You quoted First uh, Corinthians six eleven. I'm just going to read it again. Uh, In the past, some of you were like that, but you were washed clean, you were made holy, and mm-hmm. you were made right with God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Uh, so you made the point you were talking about uh, Simon the leper and the stigma that can hang around even long after we have been uh, we have encountered Christ and been washed clean and uh, and rescued and healed. Um, when you encounter people who are perhaps not living in the reality of having been washed clean by Christ, what is what is your counsel to them? Do, what are some of the signs that you recognize when somebody isn't living in the new reality uh, that they've uh, they are a sinner. Well, that's Christ. an interesting question. Um, I quoted, and it might be the first time that I've quoted the Didache. I'm not sure, mm. but it's a. Uh, you know, I really encourage people to look it up on the. It looks like Didache with an e. Mm. Um, look it up. Google it. Um, it it was really gives us wonderful teaching of the early church, and it's interesting that the victorious church, the church that that knew they were rescued, yeah, they're told every week. Before you take partake of what we usually call communion or the Eucharist, you take time to confess your sins yeah. and confess them one to another and confess them. In other words, we we even though we're victorious, we live with an understanding that that week by week we really need the grace of God. Yeah. It's so easy for us to say, "Oh yeah, I love the grace of God," <laughs> but um, so. You know, we've said here before that I've I've taught you four sons of mine. If you're going to follow somebody, follow someone with a limp. That's right. <laughs> Look for somebody who walks with a limp. Yeah. If you listen to prophetic words, listen for the sound of tears in their voice. Mm. Um, I think that all of this again and again and again pushes us back almost to where we started, to the Sermon on the Mount, the first beatitude, five three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't mean we're groveling. That doesn't mean I'm just depressed. That's nothing like that. Yeah. It's saying, oh, how I need the spirit of Christ at work in me all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I, you ask me, what are the signs? I, I haven't been asked that before. I don't know. Off the top of my head, one of the things is, what's God saying to you? Well, nothing. Well, that tells me right away that we're probably not abiding mm. in the vine. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That abiding is is very interactive. Abiding is hearing. Abiding is letting Jesus touch our hearts. Yeah. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit touch our hearts and mold us. Um, I think whenever there's a settledness, there was a quote that I decided not to use today, but it talked about not being self-satisfied. Mm. And... Uh, uh, I think that when we don't abide, we easily fall into self-satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And we also fall into just day by day, not really pressing in yeah. or expecting anything. That's off the top of my head. So brokenness you would equate with uh, facing our need for Christ, living in the in the understanding of our need for his grace. And yeah, mercy. and I would couple that. That's a huge question, but I would maybe we should do a series on that sometime. Because I would I would say that brokenness is the only way to um like I alluded to today, Matthew mm-hmm. sixteen twenty five, to lose our lives. Um it's it's 
it's the only way to the true self. Yeah. See, the false self doesn't hear from God. Why? False self, it's false. It's not real. Yeah. But we live off that. Yeah. We all do until we begin this journey of recognizing the falseness, the areas in our life that we hold on to, whether it's our self-image or our prejudices or preferences or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. But but brokenness recognizes us, say, Lord, look at that. Yeah. And inviting him in, and that's what opens us up to being conformed to his image, Romans 8.29, but also leads us to who we really are. Yeah. Who we really are. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that uh, when we talk about the resurrection, you know, the other side of the cross. Yeah. But um, I think that that's it. I would really like for people to understand that I'm not saying everybody needs to walk around depressed. In fact, we shouldn't walk around depressed right. or anything. But I'm talking about is willing to have God break us of our strength of our own things. Mm-hmm. Brokenness is no fun, folks. Um, I have, we've all had times of brokenness. Yeah. I particularly said, I believe there is at least one major breaking yeah. in a person's life. Mm-hmm. I know when mine was, I know it was two terrible, awful years. Yeah. Of, it's like, where did God go? Yeah. And where did all favor go? And where did my reputation go? Um, you know, and, and, you know, it didn't go into some kind of sin or anything, but suddenly I was persona non grata in my own world. But there's a difference between living in that space, like dwelling in the brokenness and, and not moving into the abundant life that comes from abiding in Christ versus, uh, carrying your newfound understanding of need for Christ yes. from that place into that which he's calling yes. you. Yes, letting him break, we're back to that word, yeah. uh, the old pieces yeah. and, and going very empty-handed emotionally, spiritually, mm-hmm. and letting him begin to slowly rebuild. It is not a fast process. If no. anybody thinks brokenness is yeah. a tough week or a tough month, yeah. they don't know brokenness. Right. And But it is always the way to real life. You know, I've quoted so many times um, Song of Solomon 8.5, who is this coming up out of the desert, leaning upon her lover? Yeah. His purpose for us is a leaning and a loving heart mm-hmm. into Christ. This is abiding in Christ. Yeah. This is eternal life that you might know him. Yeah experientially know him, not know about him. We have replaced know him with with our discipleship classes and our various things yeah. that if we learn all that stuff, and I'm not saying, you know, I love to learn, but that is not discipleship. Yeah. Discipleship is is facing who we really are, letting him say, now, now yeah. I can begin to work yeah. and heal and reform into who your true self is that you don't even know, but I do. Mm-hmm. I heard you say a moment ago, you know, if if you think brokenness is a, a week-long process or a month-long process, you don't know brokenness. I suspect we have some listeners who have been feeling stuck in the desert, perhaps, stuck in that brokenness for years and years and years and are unsure of how to come up out of the desert. Uh, what would you say to those who feel stuck in the brokenness and haven't maybe just haven't reached that place of really understanding how to face their true self and let the Lord uh, okay. conform them. A few things off the top of my head. Again, these are huge topics. Yeah. But one, I would very deliberately and intentionally ask the Holy Spirit to show um, what needs to be illuminated. Yeah. And then to give it up. Yeah. To, to be like Mary and mm-hmm. just pour that out, that's, that's one thing. Um, in practical terms, I would encourage people to just be quiet before the Lord and recognize that as so many have said, uh, whether it's Merton, whether it's, whether it's uh, Julian of Norwich, and, and on and on, Teresa of Avila, no prayer is wasted. It has very little to do with our feelings. Mm. But... Uh, remember today we got from Jerome, you know, that there's hope, there's faith, there's love, that that we uh, we believe 
that he's with us yeah. when in our quiet. Secondly, I would really encourage people to to read meditatively uh, the Psalms, Song of Solomon. I spent uh, six months in Song of Solomon, those eight chapters. Um, uh, John's Gospel, I would say especially chapter 1 and chapters uh, 13 through 17. I spent a year there. Hmm. Um that that you do it not to memorize them. And I'm not talking about that, although memorizing is fine. I'm talking about here I am, Lord. Yeah. Here I am. Mm. And uh, rather than, oh, I've just been in this terrible place forever. I don't know when I'm ever going to get out of it. Yeah. I would say, by the way, I, you talked today about carrying a fence and how that distorts your view of everything that's going around you. You cannot perceive reality <laughs> uh, because you're living out of your false self, which is triggered by a fence. And so I think in terms of listening to the Lord about what to let go, what to pour out, yeah. offense is probably pretty high on that list. Yeah, and its first cousin is stuck. forgiveness, Indeed. right? Yeah. Uh, or unforgiveness. Unforgiveness, yeah. And so uh, those are absolutely foundational. Yeah. That's very good. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I see our, can, our time can, is Can long, we say but... just a minute or two about Judas? Yeah. The let's difference? Let's talk Judas. Yeah, that was great. It won't be long. Uh, folks, it's too easy for us to read it and say, oh, yeah, isn't that interesting? But what I was trying to say is Judas, he was part of the 12, he walked the walk, he talked the talk, but he never made the transition uh, to Lord. To Lord, And I think you can't unless the fragrance of Christ comes, mm, right, and yeah. fills your own room. Mm. He never made that. And I promise you that saying the right things, believing the right things will not hold you or sustain you in the desert. Yeah. In the times of trial, you you will find it just all crumbles. It's, it's another way of what Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. What are you building your life upon, right? Mm. And uh, the storms will come. He was very clear. So what I'd like to say is deep down, not, not at a surface level because we'd all say, oh, he's Lord, but deep down. Is he rabbi? Am I following him because of it's beneficial to me? Am I following him so that I'll have a better marriage, better life, better job? Am I following him because I love this church I'm part of and I'm part of it? And that's all. That's good. There's nothing wrong with marriages and jobs and people. But is that why I'm following him or am I finding myself poured out before him? So I just, I'm probably reiterating what I already <laughs> said, but it's really, really the danger is we deal with that, is he rabbi or Lord, superficially. Yeah. Hmm. You could tell I'm sort of exercised today. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> it's been very good. Uh, Folks, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, hey, if you want to be with us in person, just a reminder, uh, the uh, Beautiful Gospel Conference is happening May 11 to 14. We would love to see you here, uh, and we will be uh, having an incredible time with Bradley Jerzak, with Brian Zahn, with Cherith Nordling, uh, with several other workshop teachers. Uh, we've got some just awesome people coming from all over the world, and you should be one of them. So if you haven't registered yet, beautifulgospelconference.com. Register today. I promise you it is going to be an incredible time. We really want to see you here. Yeah, I um, And thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for being a podcast listener. If you haven't yet subscribed, head to impactnations.com slash podcast. Subscribe today. Or if you're watching on YouTube, you can hit that subscribe button. Then hit that little bell. you got to hit the bell. That way you get the notification that we've gone. <laughs> uh, we've got another episode waiting for you. Uh, and uh, we will see you again next Thursday. God bless you. Have a great week.